This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Christina Dunbar-Hester about Oil Beach, how toxic infrastructure threatens life in the ports of Los Angeles and beyond. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dave. Uh, this this is such a brilliant book um, in, in lots of different ways, actually. Um, I think we, we were talking before we started recording and, and I mentioned one of the things is that it really sort of gets us to rethink um, so many of our kind of everyday lives, everyday assumptions. But it's also one of those books, um, I shouldn't say unusually, but slightly unusually for an academic book that I think is just really interesting and, it, and it's quite a good read, kind of irrespective of um, your, you know, disciplinary background or, you know, whether you're a social scientist or, or whatever. And I guess the place to kind of start with it is where did the idea come from? Like, why did you want to start writing about um, LA's ports? That's a very good question. Um, it might come as a surprise to anybody who knows earlier work that I've done. Uh, but the short answer is a kind of a serendipity where I had completed a couple of big projects about media and tech activism, and I had also relocated for a new job and was essentially a stranger to greater LA before I moved there for work. And so both tying up some threads from an earlier project and being in a new place that I found really fascinating, but was unfamiliar to me, you know, just kind of turned into a all consuming, you know, curiosity to learn. Um, and part of what was interesting was the fact that I didn't know anything, maybe this was naive, but I, I didn't know anything really about the oil infrastructure and the oil history of LA or, or, or very little. Um, and I don't think that that's just me either. I think it's sort of taken for granted and invisibilized in certain ways, even there. Um, although it's not a surprise to people who live there. Uh, the other thing that was something I was trying to square is from outside the state, California has a reputation for being an environmental leader, but then inside, again, greater LA and going towards Long Beach, uh, where I reside, there is just this massive, you know, energy, uh, petroleum infrastructure and uh, shipping that, you know, the international port is there, the container ports of LA and Long Beach and, and energy ports. Uh, anyway, combined, they handle something like 40% of inbound container goods from Asia. 
And so the whole area has this history of being essentially a sacrifice zone. Uh, you know, it's very, very polluted. And that was also kind of shocking. Again, it's not to people who've lived there for their whole lives, but uh, knowing that California enjoys a reputation for environmentalism. So the book began really from you know, my own curiosity of, of trying to figure out how this had come to be and, and why it wasn't, maybe, maybe it's an open secret, but it wasn't sort of widely known. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not, um, and, and actually you get into this in the, in the book, you know, it's definitely not how LA would choose to sort of advertise itself. You know, it's not the story uh, LA would, would tell about itself at, at all, really. Um, and particularly, you know, the negative impacts which, which run right the way through the book's different kind of case studies and, and different angles on on this part of the world. And that'd be another useful kind of introductory moment, I think, is if you could say a bit about the place. So you've mentioned LA and Long Beach and, you know, this is all the kind of San Pedro Bay area. Um, and, and I guess maybe for people in the States, they might be kind of familiar, but, you know, maybe international listeners might, might not be. Can, can you just say a bit about like where this place is, why it's special, you know, like, for example, the fact it's got oil, which again, you know, we might not always associate, um, you know, the kind of LA bit of, of California with being, you know, basically a bit like one of the Gulf states in, in a way in terms of its oil and its infrastructure. Right. Yeah. So uh, again, it's it's a sort of place out of place. It's it's um, not not Hollywood and not uh, recreational or surfing beach or something. It's this heavily industrialized area about 20 something miles straight south of downtown Los Angeles uh, in this little bay. So tucked into the coastline um, called San Pedro Bay. And it, it, so it, it's, you know, it serves LA and Long Beach and then di distribution infrastructure that goes inland. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of tucked away and the other thing that is kind of peering through once you learn to look for it is really, really heavy um, animal life and, and plant life and marine life. So there's this you know juxtaposition of this extremely industrial site, oil extraction, oil refining, uh, oil transshipment moving in and out, and then, you know, container... Um, volume you know passing through and you know all this trucking and you know big ports big freeways all this stuff um you know la is famous for freeways but the stereotype is more passenger cars right it's not freight movement but actually a, a whole bunch of the emissions greenhouse gas and and poisonous stuff is from trucks um but that's all juxtaposed with this area that used to be uh on the land a really rich um wetlands uh, and then in the water, there's an eight island archipelago. So right off the coast, um, and there's also warmer and cooler ocean waters mixing. And so it's just an incredibly rich area for life forms to either live in or migrate through. And all of that is happening at once. And it's actually kind of, for me anyway, even having written a book about it, almost kind of impossible to hold it all together at once because it's so contradictory in certain ways. Um, and yet it's all there. And yet also, I think if you see the industry, you wouldn't necessarily know 
uh, about the natural history as well. So I'm trying to sort of surface a, a natural history of the area that might not be immediately apparent. I mean, it, it sets up perfectly the first chapter, which is about, well, it's broadly about local bird life, the damage that's been done uh, to, to local bird life, but also it takes in things like uh, LA's history, its government, the role of the military, which which I was really kind of fascinated by. And, and crucially as well, the, the idea of what's been happening in the Bay is essentially a kind of, we'll do all this terrible, you know, kind of destructive infrastructure creation and maintenance and then we'll sort of worry about the damage later um and even where there's been you know kind of efforts to um do a bit of sort of restitution maybe or or, or you know a, a bit of uh, kind of post-damage protection these efforts have been um frustrated and and kind of you know run into all, all different kinds of problems and i suppose a way of sort of coalesce sorry a, a way of coalescing question there is is basically like what is the story of the relationship between the oil and the local bird life. Right. So the other thing that's important about this book is the temporal framing. Uh, oil was identified in the area about a century ago, and the ports were sighted there a little bit earlier. They were just intended to be uh, general, you know, cargo. Uh, but with the discovery of oil, that discovery and scare quotes, uh, but it, it, in that micro area, that really quickly turned the course of how the area was developed. And so the port was built, um, not, you know, oil was important locally, but there was actually, this is like the richest oil fields in the world were discovered in 1920, 1930 in Southern California. And so it became that the port got developed to to service a global market, domestic and and global market, uh, because there literally was too much oil to even be used in Southern California. So they started, you know, exporting it abroad and uh, shipping it to other parts of the country. And so that wealth uh, becomes very important in, you know, generating, uh, you know, real estate and and other kinds of sort of building LA literally. Um, and so that's the sort of backstory before my story really starts. Although, of course, I have to cover some of that. Um, there's a you know a commitment to the again kind of hardened infrastructure of oil movement by the 1930s, um, and the LA market's really important globally. But my story really begins in the maybe 1960s, approximately 1970, with the rise of the modern environmental movement uh and so as we know you know we see national legislation passed to um you know require protection for endangered species you know monitoring um and reporting of environmental conditions we see the founding of the epa and it's also in that period that the shipping volume starts to climb and climb and climb uh, and that's for a number of reasons, including containerization, uh, including just post-war trade patterns, including deregulation of the tra transportation sector. Um, but what what the book sort of ultimately shows, and you know, chapter one is about birds, is that the regulations intended to sort of 
you know, set space apart or, or protect, you know, wildlife for the environment or whatever you want to call it. Instead of putting really a break on development, they wind up actually almost being so surrounded by, you know, the industrial and the military and the commercial uses of the space that it's, it's you know, it's a story of, you know, not only regulatory, but almost sort of physical capture uh, where even mitigation measures or, I don't know what word you use, restoration, reparation, um, they're all just kind of like enclosed in these, you know, polluting and extractive uses of the space. Um, and so some of that's a story about commerce, some of it's a story about the, you know, western edge of the U.S. continent and empire. Um, but, you know, over the last 50 years is really the story I'm telling. And, and you can really, at this point, I think, establish that a lot of those environmental um, regulations you know, it's not that they've done nothing, but they didn't actually create uh, an impediment. And maybe this was the intent, actually, for, for California's economy and California's right to pollute, to just proceed at pace. Uh, and, and that sort of, you know, from the vantage of mind of the present, uh, seems like the story of the last 50 years, which I think is, by the way, applicable beyond California, although it's really intense here. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was taken by, I think you used this term, kind of slow violence um, that, that's been inflicted upon not just the local bird life, actually, but, you know, um, around the area. And, and that, I think, is one of the things that really does carry over in terms of lessons from um, what seems, you know, initially to be, you know, quite an outlier given uh, the nature of oil there, the size of, of well, the two ports. Uh, you know, California's sort of booming economy and stuff, but actually, you know, there are loads of kind of parallels with other places right right across the world. Um, there's a lot of stuff about um, natural life, but the, the book sort of also tries to think about what humans are doing um, in terms of their consumption patterns. Um, and one of the ways you tell this story is with uh, I guess the the humble banana, um, and partially this is uh, part of the comparison between the two ports or, or the kind of what would I call them, you know, the kind of port infrastructures um, in in the area. And uh, am I right in thinking Long Beach is the kind of like poor relations to the port of LA uh, in some ways? Um, but also how even stuff like importing bananas, you know, importing food, has got a kind of oil story to it. Um, and again, to kind of give that, you know, as a question, how is oil intertwined with the story of banana imports? Yeah. So great question. And I think I'll say for the record, if it's not already obvious, this is not the most usual environmental history or something. First of all, I'm not trained, but second of all, um, yeah, I mean, it's a very sort of transdisciplinary and, and placeful account, but, um, also bananas, I wound up, I wanted to think about sort of life, different forms of life sort of illustrating different things. Um, and I also wound up focusing on charismatic species, partly because, partly as a methodological choice, partly because readers already know, know about them or think they know about them, but I can sort of use that familiarity and kind of trouble it in certain ways. Um, 
So including bananas alongside life forms that actually, you know, natively live in this place might seem like a weird idea. But at a certain point, I was like, am I really going for this? Yeah, I guess I'm writing a whole chapter about bananas. But they also really fit. They really fit the story. They were, this is one of the places that they were brought in by ship for over 100 years. They're either the most or one of the very top agricultural commodities moved uh, over the oceans in the world. Um, they're obviously a hugely... I don't, actually, I don't know how obvious this is. They're one of the most, if not the most, like consumed American U.S. fruits. Um, and there's, of course, a lot of um, you know history of the U.S.'s entanglements and and meddling and such in South and Central America. Uh, so you know, there's all these different threads. But really, it was an important product that came in through the port uh, until it didn't anymore. And the reason it basically stopped was that when the volume of trade not entirely stopped but diminished uh in in importance and in volume was that the volume of other trade got so great that the you know ports were you know scrambling to bring in all the cargo that was coming and it was causing traffic jams some of which we became aware of during the pandemic with kind of supply chain snarls and and such in 2020 2021 um, but this is an older pattern here. And so bananas as a perishable commodity actually started departing the Long Beach and LA ports by about the turn of the 21st century and going instead to smaller ports that weren't as, you know, congested and could, you know, just take them in quickly and, you know, get them onto pallets and warehouses or send them to distribution centers without a risk of them sitting out in the harbor for a few days and starting to spoil. Um, but this is all entirely, and this is another reason, as you mentioned, I, I felt justified in, in bringing this story forward in this book. It's all kind of riding on and underwritten by and sodden with oil um, because, you know, um, cheap fuel is... Um, you know, absolutely required to both transport and and refrigerate this food, uh, and you know, transport it refrigerated over long distances and still have it arrive and be you know, in serviceable condition for eating and be affordable. Um, there's even also you know petrochemicals that are used for pesticides and uh, fungicides in. Um, the places of origin. And so uh, the sort of entwinement or entanglement with uh, oil and petrochemicals is is really, really deep uh, and, you know, arguably is, um, you know, largely responsible for this, you know, even seeming like it, it makes sense to bring this product into this place at this volume uh, for this duration uh, and with toxic effects you know, really all along the entire supply chain, you know, from growing plantations to transportation to uh, distribution. You, you read, I was really taken with uh, charismatic species and uh, the kind of second half of the book has basically got lots and lots of different charismatic species, but two really, you know, kind of like leading champion 
uh, charismatic species are otters uh, and whales, and, and, and we'll take them separately because you, you sort of deal with them in separate chapters. I'm in, in, interested in with, with the otters, um, the story of aquariums, um, and and again, you know, if you just you'd mentioned this is a slightly kind of unusual um, environmental history. You know, if you sort of mapped out, I'm going to tell the story of oil in LA, you might not immediately think of aquariums, you know, being important. Um, but they're part of a story about, as you keep coming back to in the book, you know, damage, preservation, and I don't know if this is the right word, but the kind of the license or the uh, sanctioning of, of bad environmental behavior. Um, so yeah, what, what's the story of uh, otters and aquariums? Yeah, so the again brief brief arc before my story even really began is, is that this is a sea otter that's found or its its original range was about Oregon to Baja California, so south of the U.S. border. Uh, that was mostly all but wiped out by the fur trade in earlier centuries. And in the 20th century, there was a small colony of them uh, in Central California and conservation efforts began. And then again, they were given a boost with post-1970 uh, regulation and, and being designated as endangered. Uh, but there weren't any, many, maybe a couple stray uh, otters living in San Pedro Bay, obviously, because that's where the ports were. Um, and their numbers were so diminished. Um, but around, I guess, the very late 90s, uh, Long Beach had, had at that point lost its naval yard, was leaning into more commercial shipping, but also had this waterfront area that in past times had been kind of like a Coney Island. Um, and they were thinking about like fixing it up and attracting tourism. And people came up with the idea of putting an aquarium here, which a lot of people kind of laughed at. Long Beach had nothing but a reputation as like an oil town and a navy town. So it was kind of a stretch to think we're going to put on this environmental face. Um, and yet they did. And otters were designated the kind of ambassador, you know, of, of the aquarium uh, full of the you know, to this day, they're the public relations sort of face of the place. Um, but yeah, there's a sort of irony that they are in their natural range, but living on totally infilled land, you know, in a artificial setting. Uh, and it wouldn't be at all realistic for them to return to the coast here. Uh, and so what they're doing, actually, they are beyond just being on display they're participating in otter conservation in uh cooperation with an aquarium in central california the monterey bay aquarium central northern um and so they're part of a conservation story but it, it it's just this um you know heavily managed and in certain ways you know ironic in ways that i got some mileage out of, you know, playing up for almost dramatic effect, uh, you know, little, I'm agnostic about otters, frankly, but again, I can capitalize on the fact that a lot of people, you know, think they're really cute and, 
uh, whatever. I mean, I think they're weasels who are very, you know, maybe they're smart, but they're, I think they're looking at most things that they're seeming to play with as kind of food. Um, weasels of the sea. Weasels of the sea, exactly. They're, they're wily, sure. But um, anyway, but again, sort of viewing them and the conservation efforts, uh, which have been extensive, uh, but as sort of surrounded and, and suffused with um, the commitments to, to shipping and to oil. Uh, because one of the big sort of mandates for trying to conserve the otters was that the tiny little population that was coastal would be vulnerable to a spill uh, and that that could just be kind of an oil spill, that that could be the, you know, end of the line for these animals that have been sort of hanging by a thread for a while. And so there's been a lot of effort to um, bring back their numbers, cite them in different areas, but it's again still sort of surrounded by and you know without really questioning uh the sort of naturalized presence of the petroleum industry looming over all of it which it's incidentally also pays for a lot of conservation uh which is a california an outgrowth of california um law that says the oil industry has to you know pay a little tax to uh, you know, clean up spills or re rehabilitate injured wildlife. But you can kind of see it as, given that the animals are all really struggling to come back, um, the ones that were designated endangered, they're not, they're not making great strides. Uh, it, it's a sort of, you know, pay, pay to pollute sort of scheme. Um, and it doesn't really sort of unseat the kind of fundamental logics that this is really a space for you know, industrial and, and shipping and, and imperial empire use of the coast. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to come back to that with the um, final question, actually, about, you know, what do we actually do to disrupt precisely these um, almost naturalized conditions of uh, production and payments after pollution. But before we do that, um, this might sound sort of slightly flippant, but given your ambivalence about otters, how do you feel about whales? <laughs> like, have you, have you got a little love for whales at least? So I'm a kid of the seventies, you know, like we grew up really being, you know, told we needed to save the whales and that the whales were these mystical creatures. And, you know, that, that's something, I mean, I don't go into my biography, nor is it particularly, I would say interesting nor um they made they made a full star trek film about saving whales like it's you know that embedded in 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 kind of popular imagination as being exactly and one of these kind of charismatic species exactly and they don't have the same fate as the otters um which it is it is partially why um i, I think you devote uh, a, a distinctive and, and slightly different chapter to them but you can see precisely the same logics of you know look they need to be preserved they need to be supported but at the same time uh, one of the points you make is this is maybe for whales one of the loudest places in the world so the issues again are yeah I, all i was saying is yeah i don't think my pop culture suffused childhood full of you know save the whales is all unique right but it is historically contingent um and situates me 
you know, a certain era. Um, so whales are an interesting one. The Pacific gray whale, Eastern Pacific gray whale, is actually kind of a relatively rare, maybe, I think it might be the only cetacean, don't quote me on this, but I think it's the only cetacean that has ever been taken off the endangered species list, meaning conservation in earlier eras worked. Uh, but that's now getting called into question, and it's because of shipping. And so the earlier things that had you know, plagued whales were hunting. Um, now it's ship strikes and entanglements and other encounters with uh, fishing gear, a lot of which is, you know, plastic and, you know, very resilient in, in the ocean and also, you know, can really tangle up a marine creature pretty well. But yeah, the, so a lot of, again, over this 50-year arc, like you see the conservation interventions working in that, you know, populations start to rebound a bit, but a lot of those gains are kind of backsliding now uh, with, you know, climate changes, you know, marine waters heating, food sources moves, you know, this or that ecological set of relations is starting to kind of fray or mutate um, with heating. Uh, but yeah, for for the last you know, a couple of decades at least with um, intensifying ship traffic in the area, there's a really strong argument that there's um, a lot of, you know, disorientation and a lot of lethality, you know, serious injury and, and lethality for uh, cetaceans in the, these waters that are being so heavily trafficked by ships also. And I think the under scientific understanding of that has been evolving. Um, but you know, shipping volume has has also been increasing. The, the other thing going going on with, um, I guess, the kind of case study of, of whales, but but also it runs, you know, and, and is relevant to the rest of the book. It is the pandemic. Um, so, so what happened in twenty twenty? Did things get better? Did things get worse? So twenty twenty provided this really rare moment um, where, when all the movement of goods and and people shut down for a brief moment um, at the very early, you know, first couple of months uh, when the pandemic was declared. And this wasn't just whales, but that's all I write about here. It gave scientists an opportunity to like hear animal sounds and, you know, the animal auditory environment uh, with, with a lot of the background noise that is really overpowering. Um, you know, there's this pause in that. Uh, and so it, it, you know, maybe provided a brief moment of, of perspective of, you know, the, the din that has been created, which is important, I, I think, for the sort of life cycles of, of a number of forms of life, maybe nearly all, I don't even know. But uh, obviously, you know, for whale communication and sociality and echolocation of food and stuff is is super important um yeah and, and again that's such an unusual moment i guess the other one in the last few decades was the few days after 9 11 a lot of things paused um you know flights were grounded and you know borders were secured and and all that so things stopped moving um yeah. So without really commenting on 
too much of that, uh, you know, like, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I, I go ahead. Yeah, we can edit that part. <laughs> go ahead, please. Well, I, I guess it gives a clue about what we might do. And we, we've not really talked about, um, I, I guess the kind of theoretical elements of the book, you know, it's been, been very much, we sort of concentrated on, uh, the case studies and, and, and both, you know, the sort of, uh, products, uh, that have been shipped through oil, the, uh, animal and, and, and kind of wildlife in, in the region. But it is worth saying the book has got various theoretical interventions it makes and, and, and maybe you know, a moment to touch on the theory is to answer or, or ask the question of what, what do we do about all this? And I was really struck by, by this phrase and I wrote it down somewhere, this idea of, you know, we need trans-species supply chain justice and the idea of, of kind of creaturely sovereignty. And I wonder if you could kind of slightly unpack them as a way of getting to well, what do we actually do about this problem? Because as you've mentioned with things like climate change, uh, global uh, heating, particularly the, the heating of, of of the oceans, this is not going to be sustainable. The, you know, certainly in um, sort of 50, 40, 30, 10, possibly even two or three years, you know, the port of LA is, is not going to be uh, a kind of a sustainable proposition. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. So the, the way I theorize the management of the coastline, the management of the ports, the management of distribution uh, and, and logistics uh, is by calling that um, infrastructural vitalism. And I'm arguing that that's kind of a logic that has structured regional managers' belief in what this space needs to be for, for a long time. Uh, or for, you know, earlier than the conservation and environmental uh, measures that, that we've been talking about, uh, that there's a sort of belief in, you know, national, national lifeblood, basically, uh, and sort of sustaining the nation uh, needs to happen through trade. And so keeping these infrastructures running, humming, and even expanding has been just a kind of in inexorable logic and uh stated and also like so powerful you don't even need to state it you know logic that's been been structuring um decisions about how to to run this place um and it's worth noting that california's economy you know if it if it weren't in the u.s it would be just by itself i think either the fourth or the fifth biggest economy in the world uh and so you know, by, by keeping all of this infrastructure uh, flowing, you know, these managers are contributing to a sense of economic vitality. But I think it's actually, I mean, I'm sort of playing with this, but there's almost a sort of animistic belief in the life of trade here that I think is actually, I don't, I don't want to say it is actually alive, but it's doing something. And so then the argument that I'm making is that, you know, over the last 50 years with the introduction of these uh conservation and environmental strictures, they don't unseat that. They wind up actually kind of sitting within it, uh, sitting within this infrastructural vitalism and this life force that officials are imputing to the infrastructure. And that has, you know, implications and is deadly uh, and violent and 
you know, harmful, even when it's not deadly, it can, or it's slowly deadly, I don't know, uh, to life forms, you know, human, wildlife, and other uh, in the area, and even outside of it. Um, and so, yeah, how I sort of suggest that we might sort of think against that is by proposing what I call transspecies supply chain justice, which I realize is a mouthful and unlikely to, you know, be a winning slogan uh, <laughs> for, you know, for change. But what I think is valuable about it, or I hope is valuable about it, is it allows us to kind of hold certain concerns that are often understood to be related, but still sort of siloed, which might be, you know, environment on the one hand, you know, labor, politics on, on another, um, and, you know, the, I don't know, imbrication and entanglement between, uh, you know, human-made systems and infrastructures and, you know, the other participants in it. Um, and so, you know, again, whether or not whether or not this is successful, I, th I like to think of it as a sort of, um, you know, a generative idea for thinking about, you know, ecology and labor and and power, you know, sort of all along supply chains. Of course, by the time things are transiting through the ports here, they have a, a history and a, you know, backstory. And then they, of course, move forward into um, consumption. Uh, but this, I hope, allows us to kind of think um, about, you know, holding together uh, things that, you know, both concerns and sort of material relations that get kind of severed from one another in, in the process of, you know, production, distribution, and consumption. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's my way of trying to sort of hold those things together because, something the port does very successfully is is break them apart uh and you know in using this site that has all these you know almost you know too toxic but also too biodiverse or something to be believed uh things going on at once it's a way to kind of uh hold this all together along with again sort of goods and you know provisioning for for life you mentioned this generative idea. I, I think that's a really good way of, of putting the possibilities of the book in context, both in terms of, you know, as you've mentioned, this sense of possibly using it, you know, for campaigning, uh, possibly using it um, for the kind of analysis of putting back together the infrastructure and the ecosystem and saying we need to do things differently. And, and it strikes me that, there's probably another book, possibly another three or four books on the, on the back of this uh, for, you know, maybe not different places because you mentioned the start, you know, your sort of uh, relationship with, with the place and because you're, you're based there. But, um, but certainly, you know, sort of future case studies, um, think, thinking through the kind of practical implications of the generative idea. And is that something you're thinking about doing or was this, you know, you, you mentioned again at, at the start, your previous work on, you know, broadly speaking, kind of communications 
infrastructure stuff. So are you going to go kind of back to that? Um, or have you got a sort of completely brand new idea for future research? Oh, I love this question. I don't have any brand new idea for future research because I've remained, um, I don't know, transfixed by this place. And I also think I, my work is maybe better when it's placeful or in placed. And you know, this is where I'm you know, working and living for now. Um, so, but I do think it took me a while to actually figure out how older work did have something to do with this, but I think it, it does. It's, it's still kind of like mediating structures and infrastructures kind of, you know, a broad public concern, uh, even if this is more, you know, environmental and energy governance, there, there's some tie-ins. Um, but yeah, where I, this this project was relatively tightly bounded around this interplay between, um, you know, this time period of recent history and the, you know, shipping and energy infrastructure and um, these charismatic species. And so it wound up, it could have been a bigger book already, but for a variety of reasons, I wanted to write it a bit shorter and sweeter, and hopefully it would have a wider audience than some academic books, including some of my own. Um, <laughs> so I still have a lot of threads from this project overall that didn't make it into this book that I'm interested in. Uh, and so I have some recent historical or past century historical things I'm still working on. I don't want to say there's going to be a sequel because I'm not there yet. I'm still kind of, you know, exhausted and gathering my thoughts, but I am really interested in governance of this site and there's so much running through it, you know, from community activism and, you know, resistance to the air pollution there, which is terrible. Uh, and there has been a lot of environmental justice activism and some movement, but not that much. And, you know, it's easy to be somewhat cynical um again california has a democratic supermajority and is not you know texas or something in terms of its uh stated uh affinity towards oil but the reality on the ground is pretty bad um so yeah uh some of the things i'm interested in are sort of you know local la governance of the site la long beach southern california um like air quality Others include um, things like shipping regulations and even uh, multilateral agreements between ports uh, to sort of clean up shipping. Um, also interested in uh, claims to make this place, um, quote, greener, but also I don't know, there's some what's called like blue economy, uh, kind of capitalism in the oceans, stuff developing um, in this area around, you know, aquaculture and kelp as biofuel or kinds of things. I haven't decided the totality of, of what I'm looking at, nor how it might all fit together in a future project, but I think it's possible there could be something like a sequel uh, carrying some of this stuff forward, you know, if this is the last 50 years. Uh, something that might be about threads of, of governance and scales of governance um, running through it. I think it's a really interesting time in terms of confronting oil and fossil fuel. Uh, 
you know, uh, series of, you know, really interesting and really hard questions about what it would even mean to transition away from extracting and consuming and exporting, you know, refining and exporting um, fossil fuel care, uh, which has yet to be written. And, you know, I find myself in a sort of puzzling moment with, you know, the predicted demise of fossil fuel. But on the other hand, what we actually know is, you know, lots of companies are, are rushing to expand and in extraction sites and, you know, the value of oil is up right now. And it's been, even with like the war in Ukraine, it's just been a pretty wild last 18 months or something in um, energy. So I'm maybe now babbling, but what attracted me to this site initially and what I'm still interested in is uh, how you would even sort of bring it under control so that it would be less lethal. And, but the, you know, levers and mechanisms and sort of scales of intervention are, because uh, some of them are pretty highly local, some of them are municipal and state, and some of them are much bigger global currents. Um, and, you know, one of the arguments in the book is even though U.S. and regional managers are ostensibly making decisions about what goes on here, there are also, you know, really big currents of global capital and um, energy regimes that aren't, you know, other people or other systems are kind of uh, naming the tune and then they're dancing to it. And so, yeah, continuing to sort of think about governing the site and problems of scale is captivating me for a while, but whether or not it'll still be about, you know, cute sea lions, I don't know.